0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavan, Senior Critic at Large. And my guests on the stage today are the co founders of Havenly, it's the onter- online interior design resource. And as Fred mentioned, I have a deep love and affection for interior design. So I'm really delighted. Uh, to have today on the stage Emily Lancaster to my far left, and Lee Mayer Welcome to Washington Post. Thank you for having us.: um, I think, as everyone is always curious to know about the origin story, so if you can tell us what sparked the idea for an online resource
2: like this,: Well, you should jump in, but I think um, <laughs> I think home has been a large part of us growing up. We actually grew up in the area. And Can I ask you to pause one second, because I know your parents are in the audience and parents always need like, They um, they might have also gotten stuck in that nasty traffic that I was just stuck in, so they will come here soon. Okay. (laughs) Um, And I will uh, happily embarrass them. We'll give them a shout out. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But home was very important to us, and I think, you know, the spaces that we sort of grew up in were very central to sort of our family's life. Um, and I think as we became adults, um, so we are six years apart, I'm actually six years older than Emily, so now you know. <laughs> I didn't say <laughs> it. Um, but as, we, as Emily graduated from high school, or from college, and I graduated from business school, we started to talk about um, different ideas. And Emily's the entrepreneurial one. So I'm like the stuck in the mud, like low risk taking person. But Em had started a couple other companies and we were kind of talking about how we wanted to decorate our homes. And I think at some point, we were sort of like, how is it possible that no one exists out there that is making this service accessible to people like us? And by people like us, I mean people that didn't have tens of thousands of dollars to spend on design services. That was really just out of, out of what we could afford at the time. And that's
0: really, I think, how it got started. I mean, and this was about 10 years ago, so it was really, it was crazy to us that, you know, nothing like this existed, right? You couldn't go online to, you have Pinterest and you had all these other services, but no real service or website allowed you to take your inspiration and really work with someone all digitally, all virtually to kind of design your space. And really the concept of the business came from a personal need. Um, And, you know, from there, even though there have been different iterations of the business and, you know, we've changed some tweaks, but the real thesis is there, that you can design your space virtually um, and buy all all the furniture in one place and and go from there. When you said so much of
1: it came from your own needs and and desires, I mean, how much research did you do to find out if there really were other people who were wanting this or if you guys were just you know, part of a very small group. I mean, how did you, how much research did you do to find out what the true need really was?
0: Sure. No, that's a great question. I think, and I don't know if you remember this, but we always tested out a, tested out the concept, right? So even before we built the website or built the platform, remember, we would email people links and have them purchase through us. We did
2: a survey too. Yeah, we did I? some
0: yeah. survey. And yeah. you kind of beta test the concept yeah. just to make sure that there is proof of concept before and go, before going all in. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that's the first way that we kind of started to dig into it. And then as we started to build the platform, as we started to build the service, you get so many more learnings and you can tweak, you know, the concept and tweak the service from there as well. So
1: essentially you were looking to start a family business and what was the dynamic like? I mean, I always think about, for instance, in other sort of creative industries, there's sort of the creative mind, and then there's the business mind. Did you divide and conquer in that way, or did you both sort of do left brain, right brain?
2: That's a great question. I think, you know, so I don't know that we intended to start a family business. I think we always (laughs) wanted to like start a business that was growing. We just ended up starting it with each other, Yeah. if that makes sense. So it was like, but it, you know, it sort of, wasn't what I had expected, necessarily. I think what's interesting is we're both really similar. So it was actually, in some ways, we had to bring on other people to do the things that we're not really great at. Like Neither of us are really great at like detail orientation. She's maybe better at it than I am. But like to be perfectly honest, to get like the, the you know, T's crossed and the I's dotted, we needed to bring on someone else. And then we kind of split up the work a little bit like internally versus externally, and it kind of switched based on where we were in our lives. Um, so you know, it kind of worked out that way, but it's really funny. We were like, one of the weird things is when you start, uh, when you start something with someone that's really similar to you, mm-hmm. um, it can be really great because you move faster, you can like, sort of shortcut certain right. things. You have a shorthand. Yeah. But what's really actually hard is um, you end up missing things, right? So, like because we think about things the same way, you potentially aren't able to surround an issue um, with as much sort of diversity of thought as as you would want, I think, when you're starting something new.
1: So I'm presuming that you aren't. Gazillionaires starting when you started the business. I wish I had now been. you're a gazillionaire. <laughs> also wish I was <laughs> But I mean what was the process like for raising capital? I mean did you have the so-called you know elevator pitch? I mean, what did you say? To potential investors. How did you find potential investors?
2: Yeah, that's a great question So I will say we've raised nearly a hundred million dollars in venture capital funding to date That first million was by far the hardest. (laughs) And I think, you know, there were there were two parts of that. Um, Part of it was we were new to it. Right. So, you know, we'd never really done it before. All of the content you see now around how to build elevator pitches and how to build pitch decks was sort of in its earliest days when we were raising fundraising. And I think it was, like, just figuring out how to put together a pitch deck and how to conduct a a pitch meeting with a, a VC was so foreign to us. So there was a lot of it that was just us, you know, kind of getting used to raising funding. How do you even get a meeting? How do you get in front of the right people?
0: I mean... You have to ask. (laughs) Yeah, as simple as that. that. Yeah, I mean, you know, we did, and I still do, a lot of cold LinkedIn messaging, a lot of, you know, stalking to figure out what the email is. I mean, you just got, you have to ask, right? And out of 100, You know, no responses, you might get one person, um, you know, who takes an interest or something along those lines. And then also for us, and and I do this with my current business, I I, um, have another business that has has not raised um, a ton of venture capital. We are mainly friends and family and angel investing. Um, but with that, you know, you ask your network and you ask your connections, and, and, you know, this person might introduce you to this person who might know, you know, it's, it's a lot of that. Um, but I think, you know, the first thing I'll say is don't be, I guess, embarrassed or anything along those lines. You just have to ask and see where, you know, those connections might take you.
1: And did you, how long did it take you to sort of hone? Down exactly um, the, you know, the clear, succinct description of what Havenly was going to be?
2: You know, I think we're, we still work on it. So every time you fundraise, there are kind of two pieces to fundraising there's your company and how you're doing, and then there's the market. And those, two th- and those two things have to kind of come into alignment. So a good example is um, when we were first fundraising, Uber was like sort of taking off. So 24th, 2015 yeah. is when we raised our seed, seed, seed round of funding. And um, and so we were also this marketplace model, right, where we we have contractors who work for us as designers. And so we were able to sort of tailor a pitch that spoke to and reflected upon the success of another company that had a similar model. Now, this last year when you fundraise, it was like a totally different sort of perspective. And the market had a different pitch that they were receptive to. And so each time you go out and you fundraise and sometimes even for each type of investor or or flavor of investor, you're tweaking a little bit here and there to make sure that what you do is communicated in the best way for them to hear and receive it. And so, you know, I think unfortunately it's not like you said it and you forget it. There's a lot of like work involved both before and after a pitch to try and get better and better at every meeting and every sort of subsequent partner meeting, et cetera.
1: We always talk about the challenges um, that women and uh, minorities face in becoming entrepreneurs, in raising capital. I mean, was that something that was ev- really evident as you were going about this, or was it something that was more subtle? I mean, and and also the, the field that you were choosing, which interior design, yeah. is one of those sort of soft fields, so to speak. I mean, did that make raising capital or just convincing people of the possible success more difficult?
2: I mean, I think I'd be curious to hear your perspective, Emily, Um, but I think, you know, one of the hardest parts about some of this and these questions is like, I've only experienced this as As yourself. Right. And so um, and so was it hard? Yes, but it's hard for everyone. And, you know, sometimes you experience things where things are a little more pointed. Um, So whether it's because of the industry we're in or because i'm a woman or because you know i look a little different from you know the majority of people that raise funding um and you you get this like sneaking suspicion that that might be it in in individual meetings but what i will say is you see the numbers and you sort of understand them right Mm -hmm. like i see the numbers i think Um, I think it was just mentioned 2.3 percent of venture capital dollars went to women in 2020. It actually came down in 2021. I believe it was 2 percent in the early estimation. So, you know, we're not really making a ton of progress. And you can kind of see why. It's a very subjective process. Um, And so, you know, and, and there's no data. It's not like I come in with years and years of operating data. I come in with a pitch. And so they have, you know, an, an investor really has nothing else to judge me on than the person in front of them. And of course it becomes subjective and of course maybe, you know, biases sort of sneak in. But again, it's, it's really, I think in some ways tough to tell. I'm curious about your perspective because of Nurture Anne, which is my sister's company yep. now, you
0: mm-hmm. have a male co-founder. I do. I have a male co-founder. And what Nurture Anne does is we do nursery furniture and furniture for baby and kids. Um, which, and you launched during which the pandemic. we launched during the pandemic in June of 2020. Um, and it is interesting, I think to your point about, you know, you don't have this massive track record when you're going and pitching folks or things along those lines. But one of the things that I do is you just gotta prove your, you know, we have two years of business uh, or for Havenly even longer, but we know the numbers and we know our margins and we know what makes sense and, and putting those hard numbers in front of folks that you're kind of pitching to is one way that I combat the, you know, the, the oh, but you're in a soft, you know, industry or something along those lines. That's that's one way I try to prove, oh, this might sound like a feminine industry or something along those lines, but look at these massive numbers and look at this market size and look at what, we, what we've been able to do with our limited cash and, and mm-hmm. things along those lines. But um, yeah, I mean, I think we'll see what, what happens with venture financing, those numbers and stats in, in the future, but it is really an interesting process, but it's the only one we know. Was there ever,
1: I mean, how often would you go into a room and be presenting to people who looked like you? Other women, other people of color?
2: Back then, I mean, back then, almost never. never. Yeah. Um, I don't think I pitched. I might have pitched women. I don't think we pitched women in our seed round back then in 2014. So there was a little bit of a reckoning in venture capital around at least gender in 2017 for a variety of reasons. Um, but before then, it was really unlikely. Sometimes you get women as associates, like the you know the kind of the more junior individuals. Mm-hmm. But typically, I remember for a seed round, when you'd walk into the partner meeting, which is like kind of the final. It's they're held on Mondays, like the final meeting when you, where you pitch everyone. It was not uncommon. To look across the room and see only Caucasian men, especially uh, out west, especially yeah, in San, California, in San Francisco, it was, it was way worse than coast. than New York, um, which was another sort of base of our capital. And I don't, I don't exactly know why that is. I think it was just a very weird thing. Because um, so an example I always give is oftentimes at the time. Um, the male venture capital partner that I would be pitching to would say something like, Oh, I don't know, let me ask my wife. And I always thought that was super <laughs> weird. Like, you're a professional investor. Like, when you invest in healthcare, do you say, Oh, I don't know, let me ask, like, you know, the, the person in the hospital down the street? No, you, yeah. can, like, you like make, you use your judgment and your years of investing and you think about the thesis that we're bringing you and, and the numbers that we're bringing you, mm-hmm. and, and you're supposed to make a call. It's not like, Oh, let me ask my wife. Like, what like, that is so reductive. A to your wife and yeah. B to me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, your wife can talk about interior design, but she can't like opine on the enterprise right. gas company right. or just invest. You know, and, and that kind of thing kind of like drove me up the wall. But again, it was it wasn't it wasn't intentional. Like, there were some things that were intentional that and and you know I thought were were in poor behavior. But putting that to the side, what's interesting is. Like that individual never thought of it as like sexist, and yeah. he never thought about what it said about you know gender and also his marriage I mean, and like honestly, how he of,
1: you know what, I mean? what popped into my head or is one of those like 1950s ads oh, yeah. for like a washing machine being yeah. pitched to yeah. like the sweet homemaker.
2: Sure. Yeah. yeah, but how many times did I feel like we heard that but all the time back then? The structure in. and the yeah. systems yeah. that are in
0: place, and you know, again, like Lee mentioned, no one ever thought you know no one ever thought of that in in a rude manner but it's just you know an offhand comment that really conveys the structures and the and the you know the processes that are in place that make it difficult for for women and uh, entrepreneurs does that suggest to you that
1: there's a, a huge percentage of the decisions are based on sort of just gut reaction as opposed to the actual numbers that are being placed in front well,
0: of him, that was, as if he didn't yeah. trust
1: his gut. Sure. On well when you this hear topic.
0: that first check in, because you're such an earlier business, a lot of you know, a lot of the the decision making is based on gut call it, right? Um, and or, it's, or it's more qualitative right? Yeah, because, like, again, your first check. So our last round was a
2: far more, you know, like, again, we've got years and years of operating history. I, you know, I barely had to do any. I mean, it was tough to raise in some ways, but like, you know, the numbers speak for themselves yeah. that before you have anything, of course, I guess it's subjective because what else, you know, what else do they have? And and to some degree, I understand that. Um, I think I think when we talk about equity, though, What we hope for is something of an even playing field in that subjective evaluation of my business Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and i think it's you know it can be tougher i think sometimes when either you're in a category that feels less that feels a little softer to your point Mm -hmm. or you potentially don't have um, for whatever reason sort of a connection whether it's by demographics or something else to the person that you're talking to Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, I think to some degree, like it's the thing that I, I struggle with sometimes in these conversations is I never want a woman or a person of color or anyone else that's underrepresented to feel like this can't, they can't do this, right? It can be done. Mm -hmm. You know, you do have to think differently potentially about how you pitch or who you pitch, but it's totally, you know, doable. It's just harder.
1: (laughs) Well, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is, you know, recently Kim Kardashian announced. Um, that she was starting a private equity firm. Serena Williams has talked a lot about, now that she has evolved away from tennis, that she wants to focus on venture capital. I mean, how important is it to have women faces like that in that space on the other side of the pitch?
0: Oh, I mean, incredibly, incredibly important. and All the strides that are being made and these big themes really bring attention to it, but also there are many unnamed women out there who are either angel investing or starting their own funds or SPVs and things along those lines. And this just is a snowball effect of having you know that type of diversity on the investment side, which is great. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's really exciting to see is definitely some of these institutional funds like Kim Kardashian's and, and Serena's and some other folks. But also, you know, I would say angel investors and women who are just becoming more literate in in investing in startups or things along those lines. There's so much education out there. There's so much access to that education now with what, what you guys are doing and free education in that sense, which I think is just really exciting because that means that those people will be investing in different businesses that, you know, the traditional venture capital person might not be interested in, right? Um, so I think that's really exciting. For example, for Notre Dame, our cap table is all angels and a ton of women. My sister invested, right? So being able to have that access to capital, which is, you know, a little bit different than the traditional VC route, is just, it's just going to make those pathways for entrepreneurs like us that much easier.
2: It's also, I mean, one of the interesting things is for consumer businesses, the vast majority of consumer decisions in this country are made by typically women mm-hmm. or people who identify as women. And I think one of the and, and the consumer part of our economy is a fairly large part of our economy. And I think one of the interesting things is like so, so much of what you need to do when you build a consumer company is connect with your audience. And if your investor doesn't understand that, you know, you're really sort of misaligned to begin with. And so the more women and generally diversity you have around your cap table, or at least around your business, it allows you to sort of, again, meet your audience where they are. So, you know, having some sort of a re- reflection of your consumer base on your cap table or on your board, I think is just a really important thing.
1: I mean, it feels like this conversation has really sort of taken on new urgency in the last, um, you know, the last few years. I mean, are, Can you point to anything that has really sort of lit a fire underneath the conversation to really sort of bring it to a boil and force people to start considering these issues? Or has it just been, do you think, sort of a slow, steady progression?
2: I think, um, so in in 2017, so 2017 was the sort of Me Too year, um, if you remember that. And it happened actually very- You remember. Yes, I I figure (laughs) you would. (laughs) It was hard to miss. Um, But I think in the venture capital industry, they had sort of a separate and earlier reckoning um, for a variety of reasons. And actually Havenly and a board member of Havenly's was involved in a- in an interesting way, and so we kind of got to see the conversation really go from, oh yeah, we should work on this at some point in time. Like, wouldn't it be cool if we had more chicks around the table, to like, gosh, we really should pay attention to these women that make up 51% of our population and make 85% of consumer decisions. And, um, and I, th- I think that that was a moment. Um, the weird part is, like, the numbers sort of started to tick up, and then the pandemic hit, and then they kind of came back down. And it's been this like stop that that line of like two to three percent of dollars going to women really hasn't changed much. And I think that that's been a real point of frustration for, you know, a lot of us in the space, not just as women, but, you know, it's the same for, by the way, black founders and, and brown founders, like a really stubborn sort of low single digit percentage of dollars is really going to those individuals, which is like hard. And, you know, I'm not entirely sure what to necessarily do about it apart from, you know, continuing to call attention to it. Well, also
1: that the topic of building relationships, which is clearly enormous um, as entrepreneurs. I mean, how do you how did you create a network of people that you can turn to, whether it's angel investors or people who uh, can perhaps offer guidance, connect you to someone else. Are you just like the the queen of LinkedIn?
0: <laughs> you are. <laughs> I, I do a lot of LinkedIn <laughs> stalking, but no. I mean, I think in the past few years, there are people that look like us, or you know, women, young females that are getting more interested in this, and and being able to create and find that community of like-minded folks, so that you know, you're able to ask for those connections and introductions is, I think, really paramount. Um, And, you know, for us, I I think we both went to education, you know, schools and things along those lines and being able to tap into those networks. But honestly, I think just asking everybody, talking to every single person, meeting someone in the elevator and saying, hey, I do that, you never know what might come out of it, um, which I know is like a very, you know, basic answer, but I would attribute a lot of the connections I've made or a lot of the folks that I met to that. And then the one thing I will say is, uh, and and I'd love for to hear your take on this, Lee. But a traditional venture capital firm has partners, and then a few levels, and then call it an associate, right? Mm -hmm. And usually, like Lee had mentioned, a lot of those associates you see a little bit more, you see more women. Um, but it's very hard to get promoted to that partner level, and, and you know, it takes years upon years in your own financial capabilities and whatnot, and so what I think is really interesting is I've been seeing more women just start off and spin off and create their own funds and create you know, their smaller seed funds or things along those lines, and what's really exciting for me as an entrepreneur is those are the people I want to talk to first, right? Um, the people who aren't part of that, you know, old school institutional structure who might be spinning off and doing their own thing and they're entrepreneurs in their own right even though, you know, they're, they're on the investing side. So that is one place that I always look to when I'm fundraising is what are the newer funds that might have someone who's potentially my age or a female or, you know, black or Latina X or something like that um, to really turn to because, you know, I want to support them as well and that's a really organic great conversation that you can have.
1: I would love to squeeze in an audience question before we have to go because our time is running down. Uh, and it's, uh, let's see, Georgia from DC asks, what are the best ways to advocate for BIPOC businesses?
2: I think there are kind of you know two ways of thinking about this. So there is um, advocating for yourself. And you know in order to do that, you have to do a lot of the things that we just sort of discussed. So refine your pitch, make sure you know your numbers. And I think, again, whatever you need to feel confident in presenting your business in the best light, um, it's sort of helpful to prepare and then prepare again. Um, And it's really like for me, that was actually a really helpful thing to sort of get my own advocacy going for myself was like, if I felt nervous, spend a lot of time on preparation, and it kind of helped me arm myself with sort of the best pitch for my business. But the problem is, I think, and this is what we've sort of been discussing, is it's not unfortunately just me. I have to be met by the market. And so I think one of the things that's very helpful also is finding people to advocate for you. Who do you know in your network that can help you meet the person that might invest in you, that can help sort of circle back to that investor that you just pitched and talk about how great you are, who are the bosses you've worked for, who are the coworkers and colleagues you know, the people you went to school with. Assembling people around you that can really celebrate you to other people is a huge part of helping. I think all of us do as well as we can. But in particular, if you fall if you fall into an underrepresented category, it's that important to kind of get it going. Um, I think the other thing is just find a cohort of people that you feel comfortable talking to that are kind of at the same stage you are, that's been like a lifesaver for me as an entrepreneur, Um, whether it's other women who are fundraising at the same stage, or even frankly, other entrepreneurs, period, it's a tough road. Um, Just having a place to kind of vent, but also find some solidarity and help is a very, very impactful thing.
1: Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. That's terrific advice. And I encourage you all to go to Havenly.com. Even if you're not interior design obsessive, <laughs> it will make you into one. It'll
2: make you into one.
1: <laughs> so our program will continue after this brief video. Please stay with us.
0: The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
3: Good morning, everyone. I'm John Callen. I'm the CEO of Third Way, and I'm thrilled that we are having this conversation today. Because there is a massive void in the debate here in Washington. The economy, of course, is a top of mind issue, and there is a large focus among policymakers about what is ailing capitalism. Everyone likes to focus on the famed 1%. And to be fair, income inequality is real and serious. And the wealth gap, especially the racial wealth gap, is a massive problem. But there is also a different issue that gets far less attention than it deserves. I call it the 2% problem. That's because only 2% of businesses with employees are black-owned, 2%. Only 6% are Hispanic-owned and only 10% are Asian-owned. When you break it down by gender, men own three times the number of small businesses than women. We are never going to fundamentally address the wealth gap in this country and fix capitalism if we don't address the barriers standing in the way of women and people of color. Entrepreneurship must play a central role in that, but it is not part of the national conversation nearly to the scale it must be. We are setting out to change that. I am thrilled my friend Mark Morial is here. Mark is the CEO of the National Urban League, and I called him last year to say we wanted to build a new effort called the Alliance for Entrepreneurial Equity. We wanted to change the conversation and drive a new federal agenda. Mark said he didn't want to just help, he wanted to run the effort together. And our first partner to come on board was Wells Fargo, thanks to their CEO Charlie's vision and leadership. And I'm also thrilled we're joined this morning by Sheila Johnson, who brings a wealth of experience on these issues from her time as co-founder of BET, current CEO of Salamander Resorts and Hotels, and a host of other endeavors. So let's dive in with this amazing, smart panel and start talking about the problem of entrepreneurial inequity in America. Charlie, let's start with you. The last couple years were especially challenging for diverse entrepreneurs and small businesses. What insights do you have from working with so many small businesses during the pandemic?
4: Sure. Well, John, thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity to be here with all of you. Uh, I, you know, I think you know, the groundwork you laid in your opening comments um, uh, is just incredibly important to just stop for a second and process, which is, uh, you do before you can tackle any problem, you have to be clear what the problem is and um, acknowledge that there is a problem. Um, Diverse-owned small businesses, as you pointed out, um, are just a fraction of what they should be. Uh, it's often harder for diverse-owned small businesses to uh, get the resources that they need, either to start up themselves, or to stay in business, or to grow. Mm. Um, and you know, this period that we've gone through over the last couple of years with COVID has just accentuated that. And I think we at Wells have had the opportunity to learn a tremendous amount. Uh, partially through PPP, but partially through a Mm. program that we enacted after PPP called Open for Business. Um, And if you just reflect on PPP for a second, the idea behind PPP was extraordinarily important to step in and help small businesses broadly. Certainly were pluses and minuses of it, and there's no question it was extremely helpful to continue to help the engine of small businesses generally across the country. But the other side of that is when you look at who was able to access PPP, what was required, what requirements the banks had, how we were trying to get as many people through the funnel at once, is very often those who were most in need, which was the diverse small businesses, were the ones not able to access the system. And so you know, we can talk about the fact that we focused on smaller small businesses and we funded $14 billion of loans and helped 250,000 small businesses, um, but the reality is there were still a huge amount of small businesses Uh, that were still hurting. Uh, And that became very clear in conversations that we had with groups like Marx and with uh, CDFIs that we had relationships across the country. And so we went down this path of saying, okay, let's figure out how we can help uh, both learn and um, uh, get access to a broader population, take the fees that we made in PPP, $420 million, Mm. and work with partners that Knew those diverse owned small businesses, had relationships in ways that we didn't. And through that, I had the opportunity to travel around the country and to meet many of them. And what you realize is just well, number one is how important the resources that we were able to provide meant, not just to them, but to the communities in which they operate. When you have a chance to travel around to the cities and communities, you see um, helping an individual small business is helping that community. It's someone that's providing goods or providing services. It's employment, it's a place for people to gather. And that feeds on itself. And our system is just not set up to support diverse small businesses, uh, very similar to the issue that we have on the consumer side. And you know, just from a bank's perspective, the way we think about providing credit to small businesses. When someone wants to start something, so much of it has to do with the fact that we have to look at them as an individual, and there are inequities that exist in how we look at individual credit, driven by, you know, the biggest one is credit scores, because things like rent payments and uh, uh, things like that aren't part of it. And so there is a very, very broad problem that exists, but I think the most important thing that I took away from this exercise that we went through uh, is that we can make a difference. Mm -hmm. There are ways to access the community, but you need to partner with people um, and you need to come together and make sure you're clear on who you're trying to get the resources to.
3: Sure, Charlie talked a lot about kind of the last few years and how all of this was heightened and highlighted and exacerbated the pandemic, but you've been working to deal with the barriers facing people of color and women entrepreneurs for a long time now. What do you see as the biggest problems out there uh, that that you've encountered, Sheila? Oh. Yes, it was you. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Well, I'll get to Mark in a moment, but you're first.
5: Well, I'm going to start back. I'm in the third act of my life, uh, starting a business.
3: We should all be so lucky, right?
5: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, even myself, um, after selling BET, I had a lot of money on my hands. And the problem is, and we're going to talk about the elephant in the room here, Mm. We don't get the respect, women, do not get the respect from banks. And I remember going to a bank and I said, I really would like you to handle my money. And they didn't take me seriously. Mm. So, you know, I moved my money to another bank. I won't tell you which, it wasn't Wells Fargo.
4: (laughs) Um, Did you bring it to us though?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I did- I
3: think you have a lot of banks calling you after this session.
5: Oh, well, anyway. But the problem that I realized right away is women are just not on the table here. They do not take us seriously. It's very hard for women because we don't have the track record in a business. And it's, I think it's really, really hard. And so even with my money, when I decided to build my first resort, you know, men don't use their money. Mm. They get investors in there. I could not get an investor because I didn't have the track record. Mm. So I had to use quite a bit of my money to start building the track record. Now, a lot of women do not have that. You know, they they just can't do it. So um, I built the track record. I mean, we've got seven hotels now. But it is really, really difficult. And one thing that I did learn, and I have put a lot of kids through school, and especially women, I said, So many women fail in the very beginning, and it's Mm. one really basic fact. They do not talk to the family. The family, they have to have that support system to really communicate with them how they're going to build their business, why they want to build this business. And I've seen too many women fail because they do not have that support. Okay, and and then there's steps. They have to find a good lawyer. They've got to get a good CFO. There are so many steps that are right there that they have got to really set up before they even do it. So you know, I'm listening to you, and I know what's out there. I know the steps that I've had to go through, but I did not have that support. Mm. And I had to build a team around me that really understood my vision, Mm. and they didn't come in with their own vision. You gotta make sure that you build a support network around you that really understands not only who you are, but what your
3: goals are gonna be. Mm. So, Mark, you all at the National Urban League run, I think, 13 entrepreneurship centers around the country. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people who are like Sheila when she started out um, come through your centers. And I also know that um, economic empowerment is a personal and professional passion for you. So Mm what do you do for the folks who come through your entrepreneurship centers? How do you, what barriers do they face and how do you help them overcome the kind of barriers Sheila just described? Well,
6: I wanna thank you and the Washington Post. I certainly wanna thank Sheila, who is a Shiro for so many mm-hmm. of us, and Charlie uh, for his partnership and for his leadership. Uh, at this moment, uh, with our 13 entrepreneurship centers and our some 14,000 small businesses, we are working to help them think ahead. So, what does thinking ahead mean? Uh, our work with the Alliance for Entrepreneurial Equity has a focus on public policy insofar as it relates to entrepreneurial equity. There have been a number of things that have taken place in the last 18 months that place a very important flag of opportunity in front of us. One is, the passage of $1.2 trillion in infrastructure dollars for roads, bridges, water systems, airports, rail systems, uh, and the abundant number of contracting opportunities that are going to exist for small and medium sized businesses, for black businesses and other businesses all across the nation, really over a 10 year horizon. Number two, the Chips and Science Act what just got passed. Billions of dollars in both cash and tax incentives that will go to create, if you will, a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a chips business here in the United States. Well, I want to make sure that those companies, and I share this with the president in my meeting with him, that those companies that receive that very healthy dose of public subsidy are also going to pay attention to subcontracting opportunities and job opportunities for African-Americans, or we're going to create a science divide. Uh, We're going to take a powerful step forward to subsidize and to support something we need to do, but if we don't do it in an inclusive way. So that is a second, if you will, flag of opportunity. The third flag of opportunity is the Uh, recently passed, uh, if you will, climate bill, which has embedded within it a range of private sector, Charlie, tax incentives, cash supports, and some consumer-side incentives, all designed to uh, lessen our dependence on fossil fuels and to stand up a stronger renewables industry. With all of that public dollars the dollars of all, being injected into the future of the American economy, uh, it is incumbent on the private sector and the public sector to have the will and the plan to make sure that we're not going to create, if you will, a wider climate divide and a science divide and an infrastructure divide where black small businesses and small businesses are left behind. The third flag of opportunity is that The infrastructure bill lifted the MBDA for the first time to a statutory agency and gave it more resources uh, than ever before. And I'm proud that that agency is now led by Under Secretary Don Cravens, who helped us get this started as our executive vice president. Uh, So that's the next, if you will, flag of opportunity. Here is an important public policy barrier that we have to confront. And I want to really raise this. Over the years, in the 80s and the 90s, those opposed to economic equity went into the Congress and passed what are called gross receipts and net worth caps placed on black, brown, and women owned businesses who do business with the federal government. So the theory was you can participate in these disadvantaged business programs, but if your net worth gets to a certain level, if your uh, gross receipts as a business get to a certain level, you're no longer eligible to participate in these programs. These caps have never been updated, but the theory was that at some point these businesses could compete in the economic mainstream. The evidence shows that the theory of the gross receipts cap and the net worth cap was flawed and failed. So in our work uh, here, uh, and we we're having a discussion that sort of Mel's business and public policy. We have to focus on the public policy barriers and the public policy opportunities. Uh, And along with that, uh, if the private sector and the financial services sector works really hard to create both venture, risk, and debt capital uh, for these businesses, we can truly make a difference because of these flags of opportunity. The money that's going to be invested, the money that's going to be spent, these sectors that are going to be enhanced in this country uh, are very, very significant and important. And I don't want us to miss hmm. this opportunity. Uh, and I don't want us to miss the important steps that have already been taken in a short period of time by the Biden-Harris administration and this Congress. But understand that these uh, equity is not self-executing. Because the systems were not designed for equity. So we've got to hammer and push and change and transform. And I think
3: that's why this is such a timely uh, and important conversation. Um, Sheila, yeah. Mark is talking about uh, hammering and pushing policymakers. So, two questions for you. One is we're sitting here in Washington. Mm-hmm. From your decades of experience, what would you say to policymakers? they really need to do if they want to bring down these barriers. And then a question I'm sure a lot of people here and watching would like to know is, well, what is the secret to your success? Why have you become such a successful entrepreneur? So we're going to move a little more quickly through these because we're running low on time, but let me put those two to you and then I'll get back to our other two panelists.
5: Well, first of all, as I said, I built a really strong network. I hired people that were smarter than me. And that really understood That's tough my to do. business. Yeah. And so many, especially women, it's, it's very hard for them to get started. But you have to swallow hard mm. and, and understand where your limitations are. What are your passions? Who are you really? Um, to really build that network. And I had to really be very careful and was making sure that I brought the right people around me. Because mm. if you make that mistake, it's bad. I mean, someone went through $12 million of my money and they mm. were recommended to me. Um, you got to be careful mm. to build that network. And there's something I do want to talk about. Jason Wright and myself, we have been um, chairing a strategic partnership with Greater Washington, and we have raised $4.75 billion that is going to be. Wow. Um, given away over the next five years. And we're really really focusing on women, minority-owned businesses, because they are just really left out. Now the reason why I've been successful at what I'm doing, I really have a good business plan. Mm. I really knew exactly where I wanted to go, put the business plan together, shopped it to the most important people I wanted to hire. They share my vision, I check with them, they have respect for me. I also am very committed to diversity, Mm. so I make sure that as I'm building my business that I have black, brown women and men working for me whom I trust. Mm. Because if you don't have the people around you that really share your vision, it's not going to work. Also the best financial people I could get around me who can watch every penny, every dollar. We make so many mistakes by not keeping our eye on the ball. Mm. And a good lawyer.
3: Damn good advice. (laughs) Um, So uh, Charlie, you talked about the kind of look back at the pandemic and what you learned through it. Look ahead now. So as you look out over the next few years, next half decade, what does the climate look like for small businesses? What are you worried about? What are you excited about? Just kind of give us a little bit of a
4: tour of the horizon. And I'll I'll keep this short because I know we're running low on time and want to get to Mark. Um, Mark used the word divide earlier today uh, in several different respects and I think what we see with consumers and what we see with small businesses is very, very similar. Um, And There is a very, very big divide in the health of consumer and small businesses. Those that started very strong, that have more wealth, are doing really well, Mm -hmm. have plenty of resources. Their deposits are still as high as they've been. They're spending, they're building inventories if they're small businesses, and uh, they're feeling actually very good about things, even though as they look out, they're concerned, Um, but they've got uh, a real base to fall back on if there's an issue. When you look at those that went into the pandemic with less resources, many of which are minority-owned businesses or uh, uh, minorities on the consumer side, and we're really starting to see them struggle. Their deposit balances are down substantially from what they were pre-pandemic. They're having to spend um, a lot more on food, fuel, the things that we're all seeing in the inflationary environment. Their discretionary spend or their ability to invest as a business is much more limited than it was. Um, And so as we look at those things, one of the things we're trying to protect against is that we don't help contribute to the self-fulfilling prophecy of, when 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 cu- when people and businesses need you the most, you can't walk away because you're concerned about the credit. That's what we. That that's mm-hmm. what got us into the problem that we're into. So I am. So you know, overall, I think, you know, things are very strong, mm. but you need to look uh, under the covers and say it's strong for some, not as strong for others, and we all need to focus which means proactively reaching out, where can we help people when we see the very beginnings of businesses or individuals getting in trouble, um, so that this racial equity gap that exists doesn't widen. Um,
3: Mark, we have about a minute left. We'll give you the last word. What are you most worried and what are you most excited about given the dynamics you just described?
6: What I'm excited about is the spirit and the energy I see amongst young people who want to become self-employed who want to be entrepreneurs, who want to create for themselves, who uh, have mastered the art of utilization of technology, culture, and opportunity. And there's a, just an energy uh, mm. that is uh, you know, indefatigable, uh, that exists, uh, and they see and feel the opportunity. They need a boost. They need a nudge. They need technical assistance. They need to understand the various ways to secure access to capital. Uh, and we have to invest in them. Right. You know, we have to really, really invest time. We have to invest talent. We have to invest, invest treasure in them. That's what makes me optimistic. What makes me pessimistic is all the old bogus arguments, all of the yesterday thinking. Mm. Uh, just hustle a little harder, <laughs> just work a little longer, uh, and you know, it, it'll work out. Uh, pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. Uh, And the moment of George Floyd is a moment to understand, examine structural inequities and to change them and to alter them to create a more just and equitable economic future for the country. So uh, we have great opportunities at this moment, uh, but we have to lean in and push. It's a private sector uh, imperative. It is a government imperative at every level. Uh, It is an imperative in the community. So those of us at the National Urban League who've been committed to economic equity and economic empowerment also see entrepreneurial growth as a way to create jobs, produce jobs, produce opportunity for people in the community. So uh, we're going to all work together. I mean, I am uh, powerfully optimistic, uh, but do not have a rose-colored set of glasses on uh, and say to people, let's not engage in yesterday's arguments. And let's understand that some of the things like this gross receipts, net worth, uh, regime that has existed has to be dismantled for something fresh and new.
3: Brilliant. Well, I want to thank Sheila, Charlie, and Mark for a insightful uh, Rich and brilliant conversation. I'm sure everyone here and watching has the same feeling I do, which is, 20 minutes is not nearly enough with the three of these folks, and we'd like quite a bit more time. I also want to thank the Washington Post for putting together and um, hosting this important event on this crucial topic. For those of you who are interested, go to learn more about the Alliance for Entrepreneur Equity. Go to a AEEquity.org. And again, thank you all for being here and thank the Washington Post. We'll turn it over to the person. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And now, back to Washington Post Live.
7: Good morning, everyone. I'm Leanne Caldwell. I'm the co author of The Early 202 here at the Washington Post and also an anchor here at Washington Post Live. Uh, as you all know, we have been talking a lot today about entrepreneurial equity, and so joining us today is SBA Administrator Isabel Casillas-Guzman. Thank you so much for being here, spending your time with us. We it's have
8: a-, a pleasure. It's my favorite topic, so great to be here.
7: A lot of questions to get to. Um, so first, I want to start with a little bit of news. Uh, the Consumer Price Index uh, data came out today, inflation once again pretty high, 8.3%, what more can the administration do to tamp down on that inflation, and especially when it comes to small businesses? Mm
8: Well, I mean, I think that uh, in context, it's important to, you know, to remember that the American Rescue Plan, really and SBA's role in it, in terms of getting relief to small businesses, was really critical uh, towards giving them a, a sound footing uh, and to be able to survive some of the pandemic pressures in the marketplace. Uh, and obviously now dealing with inflation and a tight labor market are top concerns for our small businesses uh, across the board. The President has uh, obviously for some time you know, called inflation as the number one issue that we need to deal with uh, to ensure that our economy can transition from this historic economic recovery with incredible job growth to a, a stable, sustainable, growth, growing economy. And uh, you know the Inflation Reduction Act, of course, a signature legislative achievement of the president, is, is cornerstone in trying to make progress towards lowering those costs and investing in our supply chains. Uh, and throughout the you know, administration, we've been trying to focus on uh, you know, shoring up our supply chains here domestically to, to try to help uh, you know drive down inflation and the pressures of the COVID disrupted marketplace across the world. Uh, you know, I think that uh, obviously working to support you know, the Federal Reserve and their actions to try to ensure that they fight inflation is really key, but uh, the efforts that are made to lower health costs, lower energy costs uh, within the Inflation Reduction Co- uh, Act uh, are more important first steps towards continuing to try to uh, you know, sustain this economy for, our, especially our small businesses who are often hardest hit and don't necessarily have that vendor relationship to negotiate uh, and ensure their pricing to make their goods or deliver their services.
7: What are you hearing from small businesses, what their concerns are? Is it more about the tight labor market, that it's still hard to find workers, or is it more about inflation?
8: It's truly a mix, uh, to be honest. Even on the tight labor market issue, uh, you'll find small businesses who maybe were very adept at uh, retaining their workforce, uh, deploying strategies that uh, enable them to engender that loyalty, whether it was PPP funding to retain their workforce or, or otherwise, uh, and have not experienced the same challenges in getting workforce, including in high-impacted industries like the restaurant industry. So, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's really been uh, a diverse group of opinions. Uh, you know, I would say that uh, I, I equally hear those uh, two issues referenced. And. The labor market because clearly small businesses are interested in, in growing there is uh, you know continued optimism amongst small businesses. Uh, they're excited about the opportunities that present themselves, whether that's contracting uh, to build our infrastructure and the infrastructure investments and Jobs Act or being part of supply chain manufacturing and innovation investments in the chips and science act or more climate related on the inflation reduction act. So I've seen small businesses positioning for growth and thus the workforce issue is remains uh, equally important for them.
7: Two and a half years after this pandemic started, what else do small businesses, what challenges do they face to dig out of this pandemic or how has the landscape changed for small businesses?
8: I think there have been a lot of uh, key changes. You know, Clearly, uh, relief was really critical for them to, to survive, but it also gave them an opportunity to, you know, to, to pivot and adapt and really think um, strategically. There are opportunities uh, on the horizon, probably the biggest um, trend that I see as a silver lining that we've leaned into at the SBA is the adoption of technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, e-commerce represents uh, you know a huge opportunity for small businesses to grow their revenues, and it's really about that. If those businesses with the strongest balance sheets are the ones that are surviving and looking towards the future and growth, they're able to position themselves to sustain during this time. And so uh, our goal is to really ensure that they can have strong balance sheets, and whether that that's through our affordable capital products to help them, uh, or through the revenue growth opportunities and the technical assistance that they need uh, to really grow their revenues whether in, in, in government contracting, uh, in exporting abroad, in e-commerce avenues, or in their own marketplace.
7: Um since the pandemic, which started through the the Trump administration, um, the Washington Post just reported yesterday that, you know, the SBA's uh, oversight arm, the inspector general, found that $13 billion of aid went overseas. So, you know, what is your response to that? What is the SBA trying to do to tamp down on that? And have you had any sort of broad accounting of how much fraud has taken place in these programs.
8: Unfortunately, there was a lot of cleanup that had to be done by the implementation in 2020 of these core programs, Paycheck Protection Program, uh, as well as the initial uh, rounds of COVID Idol. Uh, under President Biden, he was very committed to ensuring those funds got into the hands of the businesses they were intended to serve and really targeting the smallest of the small, uh, as well as those in underserved communities who were left out of early rounds, You know, black and brown businesses that, uh, in particular that were not able to access at the same rates the PPP program in particular. So with that, you know, obviously, uh, you know, that was outreach for the equity perspective, but also controls. Uh, You know, we have a different approach in implementing these programs uh, and have a collaborative uh, partnership with our inspector general as well to ensure that we are putting in uh, the right controls, the right technology to tamp down fraud uh, and ensure that these funds are used for our small businesses. So that initial analysis of the portfolio to determine how many IP addresses uh, had foreign ties, uh, you know. that was an initial assessment. We're continuing to dig out of that data to uh, work with the IG, the Department of Justice, and the Secret Service as they pursue these cases and uh, determine the real picture of fraud in the end, which we don't know at this point. But clearly, um, those controls were put in place in early 2021, and we feel strongly about the fraud risk management that we've put in place at the SBA as a good measure to preventing fraudsters.
7: Do you think it'll be more than $13 billion? Do you think the number could no, be a, you know
8: that's an estimate of the the total you know, potential uh, you know there's other reasons that that could have uh, that estimate could have existed but uh, but clearly uh, you know 2020 the, there was a lack of controls as speed was the priority uh, and so as we focus on trying to ensure that in the future technology and systems and processes are available to prevent that kind of execution again you know I think that we've uh, come a long way and will continue to make strides and really the impact of those Programs has been profound. You know, there's a uh, nearly 800 billion in PPP. Uh, you know, nearly uh, you know a total of 1.2 trillion total. So you know, nearly 400 um, you know billion on the idle and the other high impact industries you know, relief funds. Uh, those you know, had uh, you know, a profound impact on making sure those small businesses could stay open. They were critical programs, and I think there's uh, you know, no question of the ability for those to reach our small businesses, especially in 2021, where 96% of PPP went to the smallest of the small businesses in underserved, LMI, and rural areas.
7: Did the pandemic have a disproportionate impact on minority businesses
8: most definitely it did based on you know multiple findings uh, in 2020 the, those both uh, from SBA's perspective those businesses oftentimes were the ones who uh, did not get early relief uh, from the SBA uh, at the same rates uh, you know and at the same dollar amounts in addition uh, but you know overall you saw it, as I was in Los Angeles at the time when it first hit uh, you saw early impacts in the Asian American community. Uh, that was impacted by, you know, COVID pandemic and perceptions of of risk in those communities, as as well as businesses that had already pre existing barriers to capital, pre existing barriers to networks, which you needed as a small business to survive during the pandemic.
7: Well, that was exactly where I was going to go next, which is there are barriers and to access to capital for small businesses and minority businesses in particular. So, how do you? tear down those barriers, what can be done either through the Small Business Administration or the private sector?
8: Mm-hmm. Well SBA is one of the longest private sector uh, partnership with with public entities I think uh, in federal government we rely on our networks of lenders, our network of investors uh, within our programs to ensure that we can get to yes for more small businesses to capital uh, you know I, I think that uh, you know within um, you know obviously, uh, one of the biggest challenges we saw during the relief, and President Biden uh, discussed this with me, the very first thing he discussed with me, uh, was you know, that uh, it, it pained him that small businesses that didn't have that accountant or that lawyer on speed dial were not able to get to relief programs uh, initially. And so uh, he wanted to make sure that we could empower all of our entrepreneurs with information and navigation to be able to access programs at the federal level, uh, which was why we launched the Community Navigator Pilot program. Of course, the previous guest, uh, Urban, National Urban League, Mark Morial, is one of the community navigators uh, you know, grantees within our program. We've funded 51 uh, you know, hubs across the country and over f- 400 spokes who focus on underserved women veterans, people of color, to try to make sure that we fill those knowledge gaps and those connection gaps. That's first and foremost. But there are learnings from the relief programs and how we can better reach our smallest of the small businesses. SBA uh, had, uh, you know, historically, obviously, our mission is to fill gaps in the marketplace, but we've seen a downward trend in small-dollar lending. Uh, we've seen uh, you know, a drive towards more uh, you know, business acquisition and owner-occupied real estate in our portfolio and less of those small five to $25,000 loans that Why you really that? want uh, you know, to see happen. The, you know, there's multiple reasons, but what, from PPP, obviously, that was a different situation altogether. $11 million over 11 million small businesses served, thanks to policies implemented a lot of uh, during the Biden-Harris administration. Sole proprietors and uh, other small entities. that was more representative of the true medium, uh, you know, small or rather micro small medium enterprises that SBA truly serves. The full gamut of, um, and so it's it's speed. To market, how quickly you can, uh, you know, serve businesses with a capital product that uh, that is immediate, uh, the distribution network that you deploy, and so with PPP we had over five thousand lenders. Uh, working with us typically it's you know about 1500 um, and then technology being able to have an intuitive system for them uh, to you know work through their uh, their lending uh, you know their lending presentation so that we can uh, approve the loan as is was the case with the direct lending program idle so we need to you know focus on that speed and focus on that broader distribution network and technology and those are the investments that we're making uh, with vice president Harris earlier this year we announced the expansion of our community advantage program, which is lending through mission-focused lenders to underserved borrowers, those who are unbanked, underbanked, and represent a lot of those uh, women and people of color who are unable to access capital. Uh, So we we hope to see the the changes in underwriting and eligibility uh, and the expansion of the network pay off in terms of better serving entrepreneurs with capital.
7: Relatedly, you're kind of answering my next questions before <laughs> I ans- ask them. Um, but Black Indigenous people, of color entrepreneurs, um, you know, as you said, it's harder for them to access capital. Uh, so, through, let's say, you know, VC firms, um, what are some non-traditional ways um, that people can access capital?
8: I think it's less known that SBA, you know, we, we provide about $50 billion in, in capital products every year. And that not only includes our traditional lending portfolio, the 504 or 7A loans that banks and other lending institutions work with us on, our micro-lending program, but also our small business investment companies. And so we power 300 licensed small business investment companies to provide uh, you know, capital to growth-oriented small businesses. Uh, and we need to Drive more on that risk capital, the venture, uh, early stage capital within that program. It's it's uh, you know it has over 37 billion uh, total currently privately managed uh, through the SBA, and and that's a. You know, that's an incredible impact in the community. We're leveraging private capital with federal dollars to get you know, a lot of debt products into the small businesses, but we wanna see the venture side. And so we're working hard to ensure that we can transform those programs to incentivize more risk and equity investments, as well as uh, you know broaden the emerging fund managers within our program to ensure that we're reaching underserved populations, those operators who are seeking venture capital. Um, I think that's really key. The private sector, uh, especially in the venture space, is is more diverse than the private equity space uh, where we tend to work with within our SBIC program, and we want to make sure that we're getting to those emerging fund managers within the venture space uh, to you know, to put out our capital at the SBA. Is
7: it, still too, is it still hard to open a small business? Is there still too many hoops to go through? Um, and what can be done to make it easier? Mm-hmm.
8: Well, I mean, amazingly, and it's through opportunity or necessity, we've had historic rates of entrepreneurship during this time. Mm-hmm. Since January 2021, 7.8 million people have applied to start a business. And that's a third higher than any other similar period on record. And so we've seen uh, you know, record numbers of people standing up, raising their hands, seeing opportunity or, or seeing necessity to create their own job uh, and build wealth for their communities through entrepreneurship. And so I think, uh, you know, it is still challenging. And, and I always tell small business owners that you need a team around you to support you, which is what the SBA does. We have a network of free advisors. We have great partners um, on the ground providing content for them to learn how to, you know. Build a strong balance sheet. The revenues, uh, you know, the strong uh, management of operations and expenses.
7: So, a question from the audience um, says the overwhelming majority of BIPOC businesses are solopreneurs. How do we provide technical support and access to capital to grow the number of employee-owned firms?
8: Employee-owned firms, meaning uh, employee so I'm ownership. assuming
7: this person means um, you know rather than. A, solo entrepreneur, but just has people working for them so they can expand and get bigger.
8: Mm, okay. Employer firms. Okay. Yes. Sorry we, if that's
7: not the right meaning, but that's how I
8: interpret I'll, it. I'll do both of them a little <laughs> okay. bit, but um, for obviously we want to make sure that more of our solopreneurs is 80% of small businesses are solopreneurs. We want to make sure they have a pathway uh, to scale you know, and, and have that growth mindset so that they can build wealth in communities and create jobs. Uh, and so you know, powering them with um, a strong strategic plan which obviously that goes back to our networks but working with whether it's national urban league or our small business development centers our women's business centers uh, to build a strong plan for growth and ready yourself for capital so that you can get funding whether that's a loan uh, you know or investment vehicle we want to make sure that small businesses are positioned and that they have a strategy to grow in the market whether that's through exports or e-commerce or government contracting or just expansion in local marketplaces. I think uh, you know, small businesses now more than ever have so many new opportunities to, to grow their businesses, and uh, we want to make sure they're tapped into those. Uh, I think just in case they were asking about employee ownership, you know that's something that's a, an issue that's really near and dear to Chairwoman Velasquez's uh, heart as the chair of the House Small Business Committee. Uh, you know that's something the SBA is working on as well to ensure that uh, employee-owned companies uh, can continue to thrive. Is that that's an opportunity to to bring wealth to more uh, communities.
7: Another audience question, this one from Jenny, who asks, what are some ways that investors can help increase and improve opportunities to create generational wealth for people of color?
8: I would say a couple of things on that. I mean, the first thing I want to touch on is is government contracting, uh, you know, it's a 560 billion dollar marketplace, uh, and as the president is really committed to ensuring that small businesses can access contracts, uh, and and importantly that small disadvantaged businesses can access contracts, uh, you know we want to make sure that uh, that our entrepreneurs of color and that women, that veterans, all of our sole uh, source programs can. Can take advantage of, of government contracting opportunities to grow their business and create wealth. Uh, those, um, you know, those those programs. You know, the president has uh, assigned a 15% goal, growing from our current 10% uh, level to 15%. It's over 50 billion dollars in, in contract opportunity for small disadvantaged businesses within our program. Uh, you know, we think that that would go a long way towards uh, helping seed these growth-oriented companies. Uh, you know, as we have in the past through our 8A program. Uh, and ensure that uh, uh, that they can compete in this incredible marketplace. Uh, you know, but beyond that, you know, uh, for for small businesses uh, who are interested in whether it's government contracting or, or, or trade or what have you, um, you know, leveling up your skill sets, leveling, leveling up your capital uh, uh, readiness is really important, and ensuring that we have partners around us at the SBA who can believe in those entrepreneurs and operators and invest in them. And so the experience expansion of our distribution networks is really critical, I think, to ensuring that we can invest in communities to narrow those opportunity gaps. Uh, As uh, Mark Marielle said earlier, it's not about just uh, working hard or or anything of that nature. It really is truly making sure that there's investment capital um, or lending capital out there available for small businesses to grow, which they're going to need if they want to position their business for longevity, sustainability. And for building wealth,
7: you mentioned earlier about the the large growth of small businesses coming out of the pandemic. Um, do you have a breakdown of how many of those are women businesses, people of color owned businesses?
8: Um, what's they continue to for the past ten years? Uh, you know, women and minorities have been growing at the fastest rates. Uh, you know, for Latinos in particular, it's uh, you know, they've grown at 44% over the past 10 years versus 4% for all others. Uh, you know, for the last 10 years, either black or brown women have always been at the top rates in terms of entrepreneurship. Um, you know, and they continue, uh, you know, some estimates is the majority of those, uh, you know, those firms uh, are diverse. And so, you know, you see over indexing in, in, uh, zip codes and communities where uh, Black entrepreneurs um, are are typically situated, and so that's um, you know those are some of the data points, but we don't have specific numbers yet. Um, but I know that uh, that's been a trend that's continued.
7: And are there any safeguards to ensure that women have equal access to capital as men?
8: Uh, safeguards? No, there is opportunities to improve programs, which is what the Biden-Harris administration is really committed to doing. I think it's it takes you know transformational change within programs to ensure that we're meeting businesses where they are. Uh, you know, the women and people of color don't necessarily come with the historic wealth creation in their families. You know, they can't just uh, get a loan from uh, from their friends and family or get investment from friends and family. So we want to make sure that our products are. Uh, you know, are are designed to support them. Uh, you know, doing things like reducing collateral requirements within our community advantage program from uh, twenty five thousand up to fifty thousand goes a long way towards ensuring that we can bet on women and people of color and ensure that they're getting the capital they need to grow.
7: And. Eduardo from the audience asks, uh, Latinos, specifically Latinas, which you just mentioned are among the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurs, what can be done to maintain this momentum and elevate resources for them to succeed?
8: I do really believe, as President Biden believes, it's about that connectivity to the know-how. Uh, and the Community Navigator pilot program is a great example of expanding a network of advisors around the country to ensure inclusiveness, to ensure that uh, we're able to provide these emerging entrepreneurs with the, success, the critical success tools that they need to succeed, and that capital readiness, the growth mindset, uh, the ability to you know, operationalize their growth plan and, and export abroad. Uh, and so you know, I think that uh, the more success outcomes we can have, the more uh, models and mentors exist in communities to to share and, and incentivize more growth.
7: Um, because it's an election year. midterms are just a couple months away. Um, how you know, can you talk about the view of Democrats a little bit in small businesses, how it compares to Republicans and or are they similar?
8: Well, fortunately, the small businesses or in communities uh, who impact neighbors, who employ locally, uh, you know, truly are is a bipartisan issue. I mean, I think that this is something that uh, you know we know that all of our communities need entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, seed's growth. They're the ones who create the products and services that we depend on every day. They innovate to solve global problems, and uh, you know I I believe wholeheartedly that everyone increasingly under during the pandemic recognizes how important those small businesses are to our success and our economy. And as we see the face of entrepreneurship changing, uh, recognizing that we need to invest in all of our entrepreneurs so that those great ideas uh, can be built and and succeed, you know, I think that that has to be imperatively a bipartisan and, and uniform American ideal in order for us to be globally competitive and for us to succeed.
7: How long do you plan to stay on with the administration?
8: Uh, I have a lot of work at the SBA and uh, I'm really excited about what's around the corner uh, to ensuring that our capital products are readily available to all uh, and that our networks are strong and inclusive. So I've, uh, I, we have a lot of work in and I have a great team and I'm uh, interested in supporting the president's vision of equity uh, to ensure that our economy works for everyone.
7: Great, uh, we are out of time. Um, Isabel Casillas-Guzman, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.